Yeah, let's pray together. Almighty God, as we cross the threshold of this day, we commit ourselves, our souls, bodies, affairs, friends to thy care. Watch over, keep, guide, direct, sanctify, and bless us, and incline our hearts to your ways. Mold us wholly into the image of Jesus as a potter forms clay. May our, may our lips be a well-tuned harp to sound thy praise. Let those around us see us living by the Spirit, trampling the world underfoot, unconformed to lying vanities, transformed by a renewed mind, clad in the entire armor of God, shining as a never-dimmed light, showing holiness in all of our doing. May we speak each word as if it were our last, walk each step as if it were our final one. If our lives should end today, let this be our best day. To your glory, to your honor, and to your praise. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so I want to begin today by asking you all a question and giving you some time to think about it. So imagine if uh, a team of, uh, or somebody wanted to do a documentary on your life, right? And this team comes, maybe a Netflix original, right? Netflix shows up at your door, and they want to do a documentary about you. And so they're choose to interview people, like all the people in your life. I'm not just talking about your best friend or your, your parents, but everybody. So that, yes, includes the people who are closest to you, your, your loved ones, but also uh, maybe your classmates, coworkers, your supervisor at work, um, your hallmates if you're living in a dorm, acquaintances that you kind of know, a friend of a friend, and even people who just kind of see you once in a while. Everybody in between who has some sort of human contact with you gets interviewed, and their question is simply, and you enter your name there, what is your name? I'll use mine. What is Danny living for? What does he care about the most? What does he love the most? What is he most passionate about? What would, what would those people say in an, in an interview about you? If the question was about what you love the most, what you're most passionate about, what you care about the most, what would all these people, what would this collective information, well, how, how would it conclude about what you care about the most in your life? Take a, take a second to think about that. I ask this question because sometimes it's the questions like this or questions yeah, similar to this that force us to pause for a moment and to reflect and think about, yeah, what actually is the answer to that question? And if there is a clear answer, if I can say what I care about the most, does it seem like that? Does my heart's, does, does my heart's motives and passions reflect or is it reflected in my actions? Do they match? Do they sync up, or is there some sort of divide and disconnect between what I really care about and love the most and most passionate about what I'm living for and what I'm actually doing with my time and with my, yeah, with my hands, with my feet, with my lips and my mouth, my words. Today, I, I wanna, we're going to read a, a, a passage of scripture about a woman that we actually know almost nothing about. 
We do not know her name, her profession, what her hobbies were, what she looked like. We don't know anything about her except for this one little snapshot of her life. But even in this one little snapshot, I think we get a wealth of information that would give us enough to answer that question easily. What is, what is this woman living for? What does she love the most? What is she most passionate about? And even in this little snapshot, I think we get enough to know who she is and what she's about. And I hope that through this short story about this woman who is nameless, that we can learn something about how we can emulate that as well. So let's look up uh, onto the screen, or if you brought your own Bible, you can open up to Luke 7, and we're going to start from verse 36. So we're going to be reading Luke 7, verse 36 through 50. Verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her, sin, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we have a passage here that's a combination between uh, storytelling, narrative, and a parable. So if you notice, Jesus pauses in the middle and tells a little parable in between. And uh, that's one of the cool things about Luke is um, Matthew, for example, just has parable after parable, but Luke kind of intertwines them here and there. So we have both. And uh, in the beginning, it says that Jesus is, gets invited to a dinner by, from a Pharisee named Simon, and then he reclines at the table. So the reason why he would write reclining at the table versus sitting, it probably suggests, uh, based upon customary or customs back then, that it wasn't probably just like a, a dinner with like a few people, but a banquet, where uh, many people would be invited, and the point was to honor a guest. So Jesus, known as this popular, growing rabbi who apparently was really wise and doing some crazy things, gets invited by him, and they hold a, a banquet in his honor. At these banquets, there were, there were invitation lists. You, you know, you got your RSVP card, but it was open door. So the point was, you're invited, you get a seat at the, s- seat at the table, but if you weren't invited, you're allowed to come, 
but you can only stand on the, out, on, the, on the outer walls of the building and observe. So people who weren't invited would just show up because they wanted to hear what they were talking about. Usually it, you know, it was a, a wise uh, rabbi who they wanted to learn from, so they would just listen to the dinner conversations happening. So this woman, she enters, and all she, we know about her is that she's apparently someone who lived a sinful life. That's what the NIV is translated that we just read, a woman who lived a sinful life. The ESV translated it, a woman, a sinner. Um, So she's done something in her life that's, she's messed up in a number of ways, it seems, that she would be identified in that way. Now, again, let's imagine that important people of society are sitting around having a banquet, and this woman who apparently everyone knows is not a, a good person, she's only supposed to stand on the side and listen and be invisible, But she just goes out on a limb and does this amazing, like, really extravagant thing. So I imagine that it drew a lot of attention. I imagine her heart is beating pretty fast and she's nervous. I imagine people are talking and then they stop and everyone watches her. And let's read that again, what she does. A woman in that town, again, who lived a sinful life or a sinner, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume as she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So this woman comes, she's weeping, she's crying, she's wiping his feet with her hair, she's kissing his feet. And one uh, verb that I want to point out, uh, when it says to wet his feet, uh, Luke actually in the Greek language uses the same word that describes rainfall. So she's not just crying. She's like rain, like it's just cry me a river type crying, like weeping. It's just coming down. And so she's clearly emotionally moved in a powerful, powerful way. And what we get from this passage and from this woman's act is she's realized who Jesus is. She gets what he has done for her, who she herself is. And what his forgiveness in her life really means. One commentator says, God's freely given forgiveness causes sinful man to respond in love, devotion, and service. God's freely given forgiveness causes sinful man to respond in love, devotion, and service. And that's exactly what she's doing, right? She understands how greatly she has been forgiven. And so she responds in this really beautiful picture of love. But there's another character in the story, right, the Pharisee, and he's, you know, the caricature of all the Pharisees that we see in the Bible, and this is what happens. Jesus answers, or asks Simon, I have something to tell you, and he tells him, he captures this teaching moment and tells him a parable. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. Denarii for a, a lowly working person was one day's wages. So let's say 500 days worth of work and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, isn't that an interesting question? Now, which of them will love him more? Isn't it, wouldn't it be more natural to say which one would be more thankful? Right? Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, you have judged correctly, Jesus said. And he turns towards the woman and says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. And here's the important line. As her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. What we learn from this parable and this woman's life as an example is pretty simple. Great forgiveness births great love. If your heart is, is transformed and getting transformed, if you understand how greatly you have been forgiven, would you not respond in a great love? I know that we all have, like, biblical heroes, right? Like, when we, if you've grown up in the church, you had a little study, like, children's Bible, and you're like, oh, I want to be like David who, who slayed Goliath, or um, like Daniel in his, in his prayer life, like Mary. She always sat at Jesus' feet instead of Martha who worked and worked and worked. I think this woman needs to be on all of our lists of heroes. We don't need to know her name or, again, what her favorite food or cuisine was, all we see is this small frame of her life and how she understood who this rabbi, who this savior, who this Jesus figure was and what he did to her brokenness. And she responds extravagantly. I looked at uh, the Population Reference Bureau statistic and apparently there have been 100, well, approximately 108 billion people who have lived on earth in history. Now, of that 108 billion, there is like this minuscule handful of people who have made it into the scriptures. And she's one of them. We don't need to know anything about her. And apparently, the biblical authors saw this testimony as such an important thing for the people of God to be edified, challenged, and blessed by that a no-name of 108 billion people in the world who apparently had a very tattered history made it into the scriptures. To me, that shows us how important a great love for Jesus is. Doesn't she show the value of a deep, passionate love for Christ? How many of you guys know this song by uh, these three? Um, It's like, it's called four or five seconds, right? Four or five seconds. You know, like something, something to Monday, right? Rihanna, Kanye, and Paul McCartney uh, do this song together that has been popular on the radio. I have a friend who's doing uh, youth ministry right now, so from grade seven through seniors in high school. And he said, like, one time they were eating pizza and hanging out, and he was just listening to his kids have a conversation. Uh, and these are middle school kids. So I don't know, maybe seventh or eighth grade. And one of them was like, so who, who sings that song? And was like, oh, uh, Rihanna and, and, and Kanye and Paul McCartney. And, and the one responds like, who's Paul McCartney? So the one who's explaining, who apparently knows all these things in great wisdom, says, oh, well, I think he's this new artist who's trying to make a name for himself. <laughs> and Rihanna and Kanye are helping him get famous. That, that was their response. So Paul McCartney's 72 now. Uh, you know, he was huge part of the Beatles. I mean, you know, it makes sense that they wouldn't know. I mean, they were big in the 60s, so like my parents' generation kind of. And they are, you know, a few generations removed. But this guy, you know, apparently this scrub who's just trying to get famous, he, he was like a living god, right? Like everybody, like 
I, I, my parents even, I asked, like, my mom knew yesterday and, like, all those big songs, right? And I'm like, did you even understand what they were saying back then? Because this is before she even knew how to speak English. And she's like, no, but who cares? Like, everyone was like, ah, like Paul McCartney, right? Like, <laughs> like global stars. And the thing is, like, Paul McCartney, he's not dead. He's alive. He's actually not even retired. Uh, he's actually on tour right now. My, one of my friends actually just saw him on tour uh, two days ago. This guy's not even dead or retired. He was once and kind of still is, like, this huge, huge figure. And yet, only a few generations go by, and it's like, I don't even know who that is. He's just some scrub that Kanye is trying to get famous. Isn't that crazy? Like, someone who all of us would say their musical feat surpassed time and generations. Someone who left an impact on the world that will be like forever and down in the history books. And that might be true. You may walk into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and see a picture of, you know, these guys in black tight suits there. And that might stay there permanently. But who is this guy? What did he do that was so great? Yet this woman who apparently was a bad person, she has been talked about for thousands of years and will continue to be talked about until the end of time. We don't need to know what music talent she had or anything about her, in fact. In fact, the only thing we know is that she messed up. And yet she will go down as one of the most famous people in history. And one of the things that this passage in this woman's life leads me to realize, and when I compare it to people like Paul McCartney, it's like people who are like giants to popular culture are mere dwarves compared to people who extravagantly love Christ Jesus. Dwarves. You know, in 50, like, who, like, right now it's like Oprah and like Taylor Swift and Justin Bieber, right? First of all, if we were singing Taylor Swift songs in 50 years, like, I don't want to live in that life anyway, but like, they're not going to be remembered by anybody. Yet they, you know, everyone's admiring them and, and we, you know, we want to be like them and it would just be successful. But I think this woman's life shows us what it means to live with eternal significance. Success in the worldly eyes could be very, like, like rock bottom because she was someone who was shunned by society. Nobody probably liked her. Everybody probably pointed fingers at how bad of a life she lived and yet eternal significance that she has. So I guess the question that I want to ask all of us is what do you want to be remembered for? Do you want to be remembered for your job? Do you want to be remembered for how much you got on your pay stub? compared to everybody else? Do you want to just be remembered by the pictures of your vacations? Do you, do you want to be remembered for your good looks and how nice your clothes were or how pretty or handsome you were or how good at basketball you were compared to everybody else? Or do you want to be remembered for how greatly you loved? Which one? The cool thing about this woman's story and actually, the Apostle Paul talks about it elsewhere in Scripture of how we're at an advantage compared to a lot of biblical um, figures. Is that by the time that she did this, Jesus hadn't even died yet. 
He hadn't died. He hadn't risen again yet. He hadn't ascended into heaven. We know the completion of the story. We know the gospel in its fullness. So, knowing that, friends, what does that do in our understanding of how greatly we have been forgiven and to what extent the love of God would go on our behalf? And how are we going to respond in love to that kind of love that has been first given to us? So I just want to close with a couple points of application that are, it's not me, it's just scripture. Um, uh, Actually, Jesus' words um, from the New Testament. Just two really simple things. I, you know, when we look at this woman's example, she was with him in the flesh. She cried, she touched him, uh, she anointed him physically, she was there. And obviously we can't do that. But how do we, what does scripture say about if we have truly understood and been moved and transformed inside of our hearts to have been forgiven much, to love much in return, what does that even mean for us to love much? Um, here's the first one. John 14, 23. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love, not love me will not obey my teaching. Jesus replied, verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. It's pretty straightforward, right? Our expression of love to Christ is simply our obedience. The best part of that, which I need to remind myself all the time, I assume you guys need to, is that that obedience and duty isn't into a harder life. It's, in fact, into a more joyful one. How awesome is it that we serve a God who built all these rules, but in fact, if we were to obey them all, our lives would be better. Not like tyrannical and like, oh, like I am oppressed by my God, but I have been given freedom and joy and actually uh, pleasure in obedience to my God's commandments. And sometimes we lose focus of that and we, we think that he's doing the opposite, but he's not. And I'm sure there's a lot of ways that we mess up. I know that I could come up with a big list. But what's just one thing? What's one area in your life that you just refuse to let go of? Or one area in life in you which you know there's disobedience just kind of that you're fighting with? Don't go home today and be like, okay, I need to clean myself up and be nice and spick and span and sparkly because, like, I have to out of duty. Go home and strive for more obedience because you love a God who has forgiven you greatly. The first one is just obedience. How can we become more obedient? Point two, how we love Jesus. Matthew 25. Then the, This was the uh, discourse narratives of the end times, right? Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. That last verse is one of the most awesome things that I think about God and his character. 
that he relates so closely with broken people that he identifies himself with them. That in fact, if you're loving those who are in need, he directly sees it as you loving him. That's awesome. Our love for Jesus will so often be in the form of loving people who are in need. This passage is not saying at the end of time, I am going to split in judgment, and if you loved the people who are easy to love and your family and your best friends who bought you birthday gifts all the time, no. There's a reason why he's only he's pointing out imprisonment, sickness, nakedness, hunger, thirst. These are people who are in need. And one of the things that I want to ask all of us and challenge is, if I were to, Netflix crew were to come around and ask you, how are you loving those people? If you would have nothing to say, let's do something about that. If you would have nothing to say to someone's question to say, how are you loving broken people who need you to love them? And if you were to remain silent, let's change that. Don't be guilt-ridden right now. Just change it because of how greatly you have been forgiven. Because we want to emulate a kind of love that our God has first shown us. I actually don't have this in my paper, but yesterday, uh, and it's funny, maybe you know, the Holy Spirit's kind of leading us in this way, uh, that Pastor Hojin just prayed about it. But I was, my major like, news outlet is Twitter. Like, I subscribe to The Globe, uh, New York Times, like, you know, those things, and just you know, like to just scroll through the headlines and hit whatever I need to be reading. And yesterday morning, uh, I woke up, and I was just reading the news. And there was nothing on Nepal. And maybe I just didn't subscribe. I mean, I don't subscribe to every single news outlet. Maybe there is some, but nothing. It was Kentucky Derby, who's going to win? It was Floyd and Manny Pacquiao. Um, It was expensive housing in Boston. Um, Yeah. That's it. Oh, there were crimes. Like some, uh, it, it was a turkey flying into a trucker's windshield and almost killing him. There was no Nepal. And one of the things that, like, I, I uh, said it, this was actually a couple years ago in a sermon, was we as a church, as the people of God, cannot let the news outlets dictate our prayers. We cannot. Because they will forget them like that, because they did. I can prove it to you. You just need to open Twitter right now. But we cannot forget those who are suffering. I want to be a part of a church where when disaster hits, I know that every single one of you are sending money over. Everyone. And I know when we talk about money, this isn't a money sermon. We've done enough of that. And I know that like, people are sensitive. Oh, don't tell me what to do with my money. And the instant response is, oh, I don't have enough. Yeah, you do. You just don't want to use it that way. Maybe you don't have a thousand. Fine. Maybe you don't have a hundred. What if you had one? And what if the 200 to 350 of us just sent $300 to Nepal? $300 worth of aid. $300 worth of uh, shipping supplies. $300 worth of whatever. I don't care. You can send 50 cents. But I hope that your heart is so moved at suffering and that God is changing you with compassion That whenever it strikes, and it will many, many, many more times, that these people, you, are moving together. We need to be given to Nepal. This isn't a Nepal thing, and I'm going off track, but I hope that you go home to your computer and you give, even if it's one dollar. 
Seriously, don't feel bad about $1. That's awesome. If you intentionally go to the website, take out your credit card, punch in the numbers, and hit submit, and lovingly do that, and it's 100 cents, praise God. But if you're asked, how are you loving God by the way that you love the people who are broken, that he loves so much that he identifies with them, and you have nothing to say, let's do something about it. Let's do something about it. Our love will be in how much we obey God because his obedience to his word is actually the best thing for us. Our love for God comes in loving the broken people, the ones that he actually identifies with. That if you were to love these people who are suffering and lost loved ones in Nepal, that God actually feels you loving him. Let's love God. If an interview crew, documentary crew, were to come and ask us, hey, what was this sinful woman's life about? Maybe all of our response would be pretty obvious. We'd say, well, she made a lot of mistakes, but God saved her. And all I know is that she really, really loves him. And I hope the same story is for us, that we've made a lot of mistakes, We're very much works in progress, but God saved us, and he or she just really, really, really loves him. So what do you want to be remembered for? I hope you want to be remembered for how greatly you loved in return to a God who greatly loved you.